Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about Daniel LaPlante. So grab yourself some coffee and let's dive on in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Daniel LaPlante was born on May 16th, 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. There's not a whole lot of information on his early, early childhood, but in his early teen years, so about 13-ish, he was living in Townsend, Massachusetts with his mom and his stepdad, who were Elaine and David Moore. He was also living with his two brothers, Stephen and Matthew. Some of the information that's known about Daniel was that as a child, he was physically, psychologically, and sexually abused by his biological father. I also saw some reports that he may have also been abused by his stepfather, but then some articles didn't mention that, so I, I'm not exactly sure on that one. Daniel was diagnosed with dyslexia and obviously struggled a lot in school due to that diagnosis at the time. He didn't have any friends. Everybody in his grade described him as either weird or creepy. He wasn't all together necessarily. Like he would come to school kind of dirty or maybe not smelling the best. And his peers did everything they could to stay away from him and to make fun of him pretty much. Eventually, the school ordered Daniel to see a therapist to help with some of the psychological trauma that was happening based on the abuse from his father and the bullying from his peers and his struggling in school. They just overall thought that if he was to see a therapist, it could help. So he started seeing a male psychiatrist and it was eventually diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder. And shortly into their sessions, the psychiatrist also started to sexually abuse and assault Daniel. And this lasted for about a year before the sessions finally ended and Daniel was done seeing a psychiatrist. That is really sad. That's the... I sent Abby earlier today a picture of my notes and I said in it, I wrote the psychiatrist was a piece of shit and I sent that to her and I was like, just a little preview for the episode tonight. (laughs) Yeah, you weren't kidding. Holy crap. No. That's so sad and unfortunate. Like, it's crazy to think like you're going to this person for help and it sounds like already in his life the people who are really supposed to be there are the complete opposite absolutely so it's it's sickening to think that the psychiatrist took advantage of this vulnerable kid that came into his office seeking help and he was just like i'm going to take advantage of this believe it or not after this therapy ended daniel came out in even worse mental condition than he was when he went in which i don't think surprises anyone nope 
So around the age of 15, Daniel started breaking into people's homes in the area and stealing random things from their houses. This kind of progressed into him stealing things from people and then also moving things around in their houses to kind of creep them out. He wanted people to know that he had been in their house. Sometimes he would even leave things at their house to show them that he'd been there. Like he would open a drink and drink half of it and then leave the can half drink in a random spot, which is so creepy. Just no. Nope. Immediately. No, I would. uh, Nope. Nope. That's horrifying. I promise you this episode gets even more horrifying. (laughs) Good good to know. Well, it made me think of... um, Did you ever hear about that story where someone was literally like living in the cabinets in this person's apartment and would like come down at night and eat their food and use their facilities and stuff? And that is like my biggest fear is that someone's just in your house and you don't even know. Yes, exactly. Big fear unlocked. Absolutely a big no. So eventually he was starting to really just enjoy the fact that he was scaring people. So he would start breaking into their homes just to scare them and to move things around. Like he wasn't even stealing things at this point. He was just trying to scare the residents. In 1986, a girl who was 16 years old at the time named Annie Andrews was living with her father, Brian, and her younger sister, Jessica. Her mom had recently passed away from cancer, and so it was just the three of them living there. And one day, Annie receives a call from a young man. She doesn't know who it is, and he says, Hi, my name's Daniel LaPlante, and I'm studying at the same school as you. One of your friends gave me your phone number. And he described himself as somebody that was very attractive. He was blonde and handsome and athletic he's like i even live in the same neighborhood as you and they ended up having multiple phone call conversations and daniel was always super polite and nice to annie and so one day she finally agrees to go on a date with him and how old is he at this point he would have been 16 as well so daniel shows up for their date and when annie opens the door she pretty much learned that she had been the 1986 version of catfished where he had described who he was on the phone and that's not who he was at all he did not look at all like he had described and once again he was not very well put together and annie was very clearly not attracted to him at this point so annie's like well he came to pick me up for a date i'll go with him so she went with daniel to the county fair which was their original plan and hung out with him for about an hour before she asked daniel to take her home she came up with some excuse where she's like i just need to go home while they were on their date daniel does learn about annie's mom and she had recently died from cancer which is probably a kind of normal conversation to come up in somebody who just recently lost their mom what wasn't normal was that daniel was extremely interested in this And wanted to know all of the details. Wanted to know how much it had hurt Annie. How much pain her mom had been in. Like all of this information. And so Annie was rightfully creeped out. And so she's like, once he took her home, she's like, I'm not, I'm not going to see Daniel again. 
So a little while later, Annie and her younger sister, Jessica, decided that they were going to perform a seance to contact their deceased mom. So they go down in their basement, they perform the seance, and nothing really happens. But then later that night, the girls heard knocking on their bedroom walls, and they're like, oh, cool, like we contacted our mom, this is awesome. And so they started to ask her questions, and they would get their responses through the knocks on the walls. They did this for many nights. The knocking was always consistent. During the time that they were having these conversations with their deceased mom, they were noticing things in the house disappearing and furniture being moved around. And so Annie and Jessica were like, well, crap, we accidentally contacted a demon and not our mom's ghost. I am upset with this for multiple reasons, mostly because... Now I'm thinking about how many people think their place is haunted and it might just be somebody like a stalker. (laughs) And now, not a fan, not a fan of this. Yeah, just hold on for the ride. So Annie and Jessica are like, we need to tell dad. So they tell their father, Brian, and he's like, you guys just freaked each other out. You guys are actually the ones causing all this stuff in the house. Classic dad response. Yes. But the girls are like, no, like we brought a ghost into the house or a demon or something. And Brian was like, okay, I think you guys are just struggling with coping with your mom's death or you're acting out because I've been working so much and you guys are just looking for attention right now. So he kind of just avoids it. Then in January of 1987, Jessica and Annie were in the front room by themselves and they heard the knocking again coming from the basement this time. So the girls were so annoyed. They're like, what is going on? So they decide to go check it out and they grab a kitchen knife and go down to the basement. And when they get down there, there's a message written on the wall in red that says, quote, I'm in your room. Come and find me. End quote. Nope. Nope. That's when you leave the house. And that's exactly what they did. They were like, heck no. And they ran out of the house and went to their neighbor's house and called the dad. And I love that that actually was the decision, unlike every horror movie we've ever seen. Yeah, where they're like, oh, let's go check this out. Like, yeah, I'm going to go up to my room to find you. Who does that? No, thank you. The dad came home and is like, girls, you're overreacting. So he was like, we're going to put you in counseling to kind of help with your grief. Right, because the dad thinks they're doing this stuff. Yes. Okay. He puts them in counseling. And then about two weeks later, the girls hear the knocking again. This time it's in Annie's room. When they go up to her room to check it out, there's another message written on the wall that says, quote, I'm back. Find me if you can. End quote. Once again, the girls were like, no. So they ran out of the house, went back to the neighbors and called their dad again and said, you need to get home. Like something's happening. So he gets home and he's like, girls stop doing this you're overreacting and they're like no and he's like fine I'll go in the house and I'll prove that there's nothing there so he goes into the house straight to Annie's room when he gets there there's another message on the wall also in the same red that says quote marry me end quote Brian's looking at this and he's like okay what is happening so then he turns around in the Annie's room and Standing in the corner of the bedroom is a young boy 
who is wearing a dress that belonged to Brian's deceased wife, wearing makeup and a blonde wig, and holding a hatchet. That's just not what I was expecting. You know what? Brian wasn't expecting that either. I'm sure. And, you know, like at this point, he's like, the girls are just like doing this for attention. Uh, Complete opposite. (laughs) Yes. So Brian looks at him and realizes this is Daniel LaPlante, the the guy that took my daughter out on a date. So Brian kind of gets into like a fight with Daniel and Daniel ends up escaping. So Brian calls the police immediately. And they show up to investigate. And as they're looking around, they're like, oh, these notes have been written in ketchup. That was the red that they were written in. And Brian was like, I'm not sure where Daniel went. So they start looking around and they realize, Abby, that there was a crawl space in the house that led to a cupboard behind Annie's room. And Daniel had been living in there. What did I just say? (laughs) Yep. When you said it, I was like, she already guessed it. That's exactly where this is going. Oh, my gosh. Which, like, this sounds straight up out of a movie. Yeah. But that's... So they open up the cupboard and they find Daniel inside. He's just hanging out in there because he he didn't have a chance to escape because police Mm -hmm. were called so quickly. So he thought he would be fine if he just hid in there, but they found him. They found him. So they arrested him immediately. They searched the house farther. And like I said, they realized that he had been living in there for a while. They found like a bunch of garbage and a sleeping bag and some food wrappers and clothing. They also found peepholes in all of the rooms of the house where they assumed Daniel was watching the family and mostly Annie. Which like how traumatizing do you think that is? I, I, I truly... If that happened to me, I would have to live in just like an open concept space, you know, and I wouldn't even have like probably cabinets or closet doors. Like I would have I would have to see everything. Yeah, absolutely. That the trauma that would come from that, especially after just losing your mom, like Annie is mm-hmm. already going through so much. And now she's got this to deal with at 16 years old, which is like even worse because you're already like extra hormonal and emotional and everything's you know a little bit what's the word oh everything's a little bit elevated just because of your body in your brain at that time period yeah like i said daniel's arrested he was 16 at the time of his arrest so he spent nine months in a juvie in the area and then was released in october of 1987 when his mom had helped bail him out The charges that Daniel was facing for this were four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault in a dwelling, breaking and entering a dwelling, larceny of more than $100, and malicious destruction of property. Where did the kidnapping charges come from? I honestly don't know where those charges came from, especially since it was four counts of kidnapping. I don't have a good answer for that, I'll be honest. The only thing I could think of is because he was invading the home, but... There were only three people that were living there. And I didn't see any... Like, I saw that on multiple pages that there were four counts of kidnapping. But I didn't see the the reasoning behind that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad at that. I think that's okay to an extent. Like, obviously, you know, if he was standing there with an, a hatchet or whatever, I 
I worry about what would have happened if it wasn't the dad that found him. Absolutely. It most likely would have been a lot worse. So he was supposed to appear in court on December 11th for a sentencing. But Daniel being Daniel was just not quite ready to be done. So he immediately after being released in October went back to robbing people. During one of his robberies, he stole two handguns from a house. And on December 1st, 1987, Daniel broke into the home of Priscilla and Andrew Gustafson and found Priscilla and her two children, eight-year-old Abigail and five-year-old William at home. Andrew was at work at this time. When Andrew arrived home around five o'clock that night, the house was extremely quiet. So he went upstairs to try to find his family. And when he entered his bedroom, he saw Priscilla laying face down on her bed with blood everywhere and it was clear that she had been shot multiple times. Andrew immediately left the house and called the police who upon arrival found that Priscilla had obviously died from her gunshot wounds to the head. She had also been raped and they found Abigail and William had both been drowned in separate bathtubs of the house. The assumption that police made was that he had killed Priscilla first And then had killed the children. Police very quickly tied the case to Daniel, but never really found out why. It was just part of his escalation, I guess. Part of the reason that police tied this case to Daniel was because he was living not very far away with his mom and stepdad at the time. And the evidence really pointed to him. So so they start searching the woods that is between the Gustafson's house and the LaPlante's house and they find a shirt that belonged to Daniel and a wet pair of gloves that also belonged to him. They immediately issued an APB for Daniel and they went on a basically a manhunt for him. They had they had a police helicopter being used to try to find him. They had police dogs and 50 state and local officers looking for him. You mentioned like escalation earlier, but part of me wonders if he had actually assaulted other people prior and just we don't know about it. There is question about that if there had been more and people hadn't come forward mm-hmm. or just hadn't been found out about. Or connected. But he, yeah, he continues to just go on his crime spree I guess and while he's on the run for the murder of three people he abducts a woman at gunpoint and kidnaps her and makes her drive him around in her van so the police are looking for him and eventually the woman escapes the car somehow and takes off on foot and Daniel's like fine I'll just take her car and I'll leave but Daniel was recognized by somebody in the area from his face being all over everything and they immediately reported it. So police were like, we need to go over there and look for him. So about 48 hours later on December 3rd, Daniel was found hiding in a dumpster in a nearby town. When they investigated him, they did find a gun on him and they also found a hair that belonged to Abigail Gustafson. So they were able to officially tie him to their murder. I'm glad it like 
I'm glad there was enough evidence even like that early on to connect them to it. Yeah, absolutely. Because even though there was speculation, you can't really do anything without that specific evidence. So it did work out. Daniel was at this point charged with the murder of three people. And he was supposed to begin trial in October of 1988, which was about a year later. So at the time of the trial, he would have been 18 years old. They did have him go through a psychiatric evaluation. They determined that he was fit to stand trial and they tried him as an adult, which I think is very reasonable in this case. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. During the trial, there were as many as 50 witnesses, including Daniel's own family members that were trying to defend him and stand up for him. However, Daniel was not a very likable person, even during the trial. It was very clear he showed no more remorse. He had a constant smirk on his face throughout the trial and was just overall not liked by anybody. The defense didn't even have much of an ability to defend him because of how awful he was coming across. He tried to link it to another family member and say that somebody else had done this. But Daniel's brothers and his stepfather all had alibis for the time of the murder. So it was clear that it had been none of them. During the trial, Daniel's lawyer spoke about how Daniel had an awful childhood and had been abused by many adults, his therapist, and tried to get the courts, I guess, to be on his side to maybe feel bad for him, which just does not seem right to me because having a bad childhood is very unfortunate I do feel for anybody that has that but that is zero excuse to brutally murder people yeah I'm wondering if maybe at this point they're like bringing that up to try to maybe get enough sympathy to get the death penalty off the table maybe he did not receive the death penalty he was found guilty on all counts after five hours of deliberation from the jury which I felt like was a pretty long time in this case. Yeah. You know, we talk about jury deliberations a lot. I wonder if there's a way to look up or if you know, maybe how much on average of time in deliberations are like process stuff that they have to do. You know, that's true. I, I don't know if they include that in this or if that's like separate. Mm-hmm. I do not know. And I have never been on a jury. It, it does sound like they had the direct evidence it, it seemed like it was all there. <laughs> yeah. So the judge sentenced Daniel to three life sentences to be served consecutively, not concurrently. So he's really not getting out anytime soon. Daniel has repeatedly tried to sue the court for violating his rights, like multiple times between the years of 1988 to 2014 even. He is trying to claim that his religious rights were violated because he was a satanist and the murders were part of his satanic rights. (laughs) That's just just not the way to go (laughs) if that's what you're trying to do. I, I am only laughing at the ridiculousness of that because like that you're just making it worse. Yes. Absolutely. He's pretty much admitting to the murders at this point. He's just trying to find well, an I'm, excuse for them. 
I'm guessing that's not a, any advice from a lawyer. That's probably all him. <laughs> I'm assuming. So in 2017, at 46 years old, Daniel appealed for a reduced sentence because the Supreme Court had ruled that juveniles could not be sentenced to life in prison without parole, which was originally what he said. I don't know that I mentioned that he was without parole. At this time, he's already been in prison for 30 years, so he was hoping that maybe he could get his sentence changed to serve his sentences concurrently rather than consecutively, but to have the ability for parole. So the if that would have gone through, it would have made him eligible for parole in 2017 rather than in 2032. So during his trial, he said, quote, I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused from the very essence of who I am from the depth of my soul. I am sorry. End quote. Well, you're obviously not if you're saying you did it for religious reasons. Yes, I agree. Like, you're not sorry. You No. Also, like, I don't care if you're sorry. If you do something like that, like, yeah, it's obviously great if you can truly recognize your actions and, like, try to heal from that to be a better person. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. (laughs) To me, at least. I, I agree. So... Luckily, the judge agreed and they denied his appeal. So he will spend the rest of his life in jail with no chance of an early release. He is currently incarcerated at MCI Norfolk Prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts. I do have an update for you on Andrew Gustafson, actually, the husband of the wife and the father of the two victims. He remarried to a woman named Carol who became Gustafson. She was also a widow. When they got married, they made the decision to wear two wedding rings, one to symbolize their marriage and one to symbolize the marriage that they had with their deceased spouses, which I just thought was really cute and really sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like a, it's a sweet way to honor like, you know, that life that was taken from you or you lost. And, you know, I think that's a good way to like, you know, celebrate this next step. Because obviously anybody, like, I'm pretty sure most people, like, if I were murdered, I'd want my husband to move on and have a happy life. So I think it's a nice way of honoring them and moving forward. I, yes, I would agree with that. Together, the couple had two daughters, Holly and Laura. Andrew ended up leaving his law practice and started working for the state as a child advocate. He stayed in this position for 12 years and then started working at the Massachusetts Conference of the United Church of Christ. From interviews that I could find where people were speaking with Andrew, he stated that he never found forgiveness for Daniel. He was never able to forgive him. No blame there. Like, I completely understand. Andrew did pass away in May of 2014 from cancer at the age of 60 years old. One of the last things that I saw in an interview from him is he was really hoping that Daniel would never get out of prison and that he would rot in jail. And then three years later, like I said, Daniel did officially receive the three life sentences that would make it so that Andrew's wish would come true. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. 
You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>